The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vina Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, your nation's public radio source for the news information, tips, advice, and strategies you need to start or build a business investing in real estate. And my guests and topic today are so exciting that we're not even going to do a bunch of announcements. We're just going straight to the topic because you know how for years and years and years, real estate investors have been saying, wow, someone ought to sue. Someone ought to take the city to court over that landlord licensing law or that unfair tax that just got levied without a vote against landlords or over there heavy-handed treatment of wholesalers. Well, my guest today has actually done that. His name is Maurice Thompson. He is the executive director of the 1851 Center for Constitutional Law, which is an organization uh, that fights for private property rights and whose clients receive free legal representation thanks to the generosity of lots and lots of donors Uh, Maurice himself has been the executive director since it was founded in 2008. He is an attorney and he has successfully represented cases at the state and federal level on issues ranging from private property rights to taxation. Joining us today by phone from his office in Columbus, Ohio, is Maurice Thompson. Maurice, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Good afternoon, Vina. Thanks for having me. Uh, you are very welcome, and I am very happy to have you uh, here today because you sort of answer a question that a lot of real estate investors have uh, about themselves from time to time and about their colleagues all the time, which is, what is to be done when it appears that our local, state, county governments are abusing us with their laws and regulations. Uh, as you well know, real estate folks are an easy target because we have properties that are easy to locate. It's hard to hide <laughs> who you are and what you have. We're perceived as a class of people with lots of money and many times we don't live in the areas where we own our properties and thus don't directly vote for the folks who are passing these laws. So can you talk a little bit first, Maurice, about what it is that the 1851 Center for Constitutional Law actually does? Sure. I think the predicate 
upon which we were founded is useful based upon your remarks there. And, and that is to say, when you're trying to defend yourself from these statutes, whether they're state, local, uh, some other kind of statute that impinges on your property rights or raises your taxes, people often believe that there are limited tools available for them to do that. They look to maybe things like uh, think tanks uh, and policy arguments about why it's not a good idea. Uh, and then, then secondly, they often look to the politicians behind these schemes themselves and uh, you know, maybe make campaign contributions or try to get a meeting with that politician. Well, we, we were founded on the predicate that there are a third and fourth way to influence public policy at the state and local level in Ohio that are far more aggressive. You know, back when Reagan was president, he, he had a quote, if you can't make them see the light, then make them feel the heat. And I think that that's one thing that we try to do, because we put these issues to a vote, either by a judge or by the public on the ballot. We use public interest litigation in courts and the initiative and referendum to defend Ohio's property owners and taxpayers. So we're a nonprofit uh, public interest law firm, kind of like the ACLU, except we don't protect the same kind of rights the ACLU protects. They're very focused on um, certain kinds of religious issues and First Amendment issues. And we do some First Amendment law, but we really try to focus on what some may call economic liberties, the right to own property, the right to use your property the way you see fit, freedom from illegal or unconstitutional taxation or fees uh, or regulations. And essentially what we're defending and trying to advance and, and safeguard is the right to be left alone by government to the maximum extent permissible so that people can make more of their own choices, which tend to be better choices than the government's choices, and it just tends to be a more moral arrangement as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, looking at your website at ohioconstitution.org, you guys have actually taken on quite a wide range of cases, um, uh, uh, citizen taxpayer uh, clients, clients. Um, uh, You've got cases about natural resources, about uh, health care, all, all sorts of different issues. But, of course, today we're going to focus on uh, some of the real estate-related issues, the property-related issues that our listeners uh, talk about amongst themselves on a day-to-day -day basis and have no idea what to do about them. And I, I do want to invite listeners to contact us with any questions or comments. Our number here in the studio is 877-772-9658. You can also send an email to askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V, like in Victor, E-N-A, at gmail.com. And uh, uh, get your chance here to, to have some input in our discussion today. Again, 877-772-9658 or askvina at gmail.com. Now, Maurice, as much as folks uh, who are in this business sit around and talk about, I should sue them for that, meaning I should sue my city or I should sue my county board of commissioners. It just almost never happens. Why is that? Wait, that's a, that's a great question. And, and I think that that's maybe a second reason why we started the 1851 Center as a nonprofit is we have in this market what you call a collective action problem. Uh, and that's a, a term economists use to describe 
the the fact that everybody might have an interest in stopping something, or many people might, but that interest is small and diffuse, and the interest on the other side can be very concentrated. So one prominent example of this would be, say, the, uh, the individual mandate in Obamacare. Insurance companies and hospitals alike had a very intense, high-dollar interest in forcing Americans to buy health insurance. And the each individual American that may have opposed that had a somewhat diffuse interest in stopping that because the amount of money that it's going to cost them might not be as much as what they would have to pay to fight the issue. And we see this more and more on the state and local level where the state or local government is just nickel and diming you, you know, $20 here for a, a new sewage fee where it used to be included, you know, to pick up the garbage or whatever or all kinds of things that used to be included in your taxes. A police call to your home uh, used to be what you paid your taxes for, and now they, they maybe charge you for it. And all of these little things add up. But in each of these cases, there's some significant interest that stands to benefit greatly behind these things. And on the other hand, there's us, the average taxpayer or property owner. And we might lose, you know, it might be a $100 fee we pay to our city, but are we going to spend $1,000, $5,000, $20,000 to hire a lawyer and fight that issue, even if we're convinced that the thing is wholly unconstitutional? And the average person says, no, I'm just going to pay the $100 fee, be done with it. One, not have to go to court and, and deal with all the trouble that that creates. And two, why would I pay $20,000 to fight something uh, when it's cheaper just to pay the fine or pay the fee? So we see good legal challenges slip through the cracks all of the time because uh, people just can't afford to fight these things directly. And so one of the things that we started 1851 to do was to try to solve the collective action problem, to try to make public interest litigation, defending one's freedoms from government, accessible to the average person in Ohio. Excellent. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to discuss some specific cases uh, that the 1851 Center has uh, dealt with here in Ohio. And also take your questions at 877-772-9658 or at askvina at gmail.com. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I am always, as always, I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today is Maurice Thompson, Executive Director of the 1851 Center for Constitutional Law. Uh, he's the uh, he's Executive Director. He's also the author of Defending Liberty in Ohio, A Roadmap for Protecting Freedom and Limiting, Limiting Government with the State Constitution. Uh, had a lot of he's had a lot of background here with organizations like the National Taxpayers Union that uh, are into let's say smaller government and less taxes, but sort of uniquely at the moment he's working for an organization that uh, takes takes does what we all want to do and takes cities and whatnot to court over things that seem unfair or unconstitutional. And Maurice the the thing that is most often talked about in our associations and which has the word unconstitutional attached to it when folks talk about it 
is this whole concept of rental registrations, landlord licensing, mandatory inspections. And this is an area that you're very familiar with because uh, you recently took on the city of Mount Healthy, Ohio, over exactly that. Um, can you can you talk a little bit uh, for folks who maybe you're lucky enough that this has not come to their area yet, because it will, <laughs> about, about right. what those are about and what the problem is. Right. We find that these kind of bad ideas amongst local governments spread like the plague, and they're just really starting to hit Ohio in the last decade or so. Um, and they begin in the kind of more uh, left-of-center, quote-unquote, progressive communities, um, you know, kind of a, a wealthy, uh, maybe left-wing suburb. And, you know, Shaker Heights would be an example in Cleveland, or Ottawa Hills would be an example in Toledo, um, Cincinnati. I'm struggling to find somebody that would fit that, but I'm sure you have a, a, a place like that. Um, and what happens, essentially, is the cities are hungry for two things money and control. And where do these things come from? Well, they come from some good places uh, or some good um, cases in the past. So as many of your listeners may may be aware, in in 2005, the United States Supreme Court uh, held that the federal constitution does not protect a homeowner from having his or her property taken and given to a private corporation simply to increase the tax base and advance economic development. That case was uh, Kelo versus City of New London, Connecticut. Uh, A year later, the Ohio Supreme Court found that the Ohio Constitution protects property rights at a much higher level. In fact, that same practice in a a case out of Norwood near you was, in fact, unconstitutional in Ohio. So uh, aggressive city planners cannot take your property to effectuate their plan, but what they can do is make it difficult for you to hold on to your property through one kind of a fee or another, and at the same time that they may want this control, which is not universally behind these kinds of things, but they may also uh, simply want the money from the fees. Uh, Local governments' budgets have been a little bit more constricted for a number of political reasons over the last four years. So they have these motivating factors to pass these rental licensing things, that basically require a permit to continue to do what you've been doing all along, which is renting your property to tenants who voluntarily you know, look around the property, inspect it before they decide to rent from you, and then you have a lease agreement. Uh, there are some state regulations of this activity, but it's never been a licensed profession like a lawyer or a doctor where you needed to uh, obtain a, you know, pass an inspection and obtain a license, a government permission slip, just to rent your property to another person. In fact, it's been one of the tenants of building a nest egg, whether it's for your retirement or uh, you know, to get ahead in this state, in this world, real estate investing where you, you own the house and then you may buy a new house, but you keep the house that you bought and rent it out, and it's a way to build wealth. So many people in Ohio do this, and these programs are just starting to spread. Typically, they require a warrantless inspection, and, and a payment of a fee, and you've got to pass the inspection, but the fee is really what the government wants, one, $200 maybe. Uh, and, and the warrantless inspection is the first problem. That violates the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution. You have a right to tell a government official to turn around and leave your property, um, whether it's business property or personal property. Houses are something that is specifically protected, uh, as the word indicates, in the Fourth Amendment. So they need to get a warrant if they want to come into your house, unless there's been a tenant complaint or a neighbor complaint. 
and there is specific probable cause. So we've challenged these permit programs uh, on the basis that they are warrantless inspections that violate the Fourth Amendment, and, and there appears to be strong agreement from the courts on this as well. And the other issue that your listeners should know about is if the city does try to impose these fees without the warrant requirement, then there's a problem also because it turns out these fees are really not fees. They're, there's a word for what they are in Ohio, and it's taxes. And any tax requires a vote of the people before a property tax could be raised. So they're unconstitutional taxes. So there are multiple ways of attacking these things, and we're doing that now in southern Ohio. Mm-hmm. And 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 talk about how how that case actually proceeds because we just we just discussed. I don't I don't want to take on a twenty or thirty thousand dollar bill to sue the right. to sue the city of Mount Healthy or any of the other number of cities <clears throat> around here and around the state that have instituted these things under some guise or another. Particularly not when I know there's ten thousand other property owners in the in right. the area that are going to be you know that that, sh- that should be co-plaintiffs with me so so how how do you go about doing this what court do you sue them in do you just have one plaintiff how does that work sure that's a that's a great question typically we're contacted by a homeowner uh who says hey my city's doing this to me is there anything you guys can do and it's just that general and and we'll look through the issues and we'll we'll you know do an analysis for constitutional issues that that might come up and if we like the case and it's, it's a broad case that could apply to lots of people and benefit society. We decide to take it on, and oftentimes we file a motion for preliminary injunction, as we did against Mount Healthy here, where we file a complaint, and which is the lawsuit, and we file a motion for preliminary injunction, which is a, a lengthier document, sometimes 20 or 30 pages, that lays out all of the arguments against the ordinance and why the court should enjoin enforcement of the ordinance against our clients. Now, in those cases, and joining the enforcement of the ordinance because it's unconstitutional will protect you as well, even if you're not part of the case. And we'll often provide a precedent. So if we enjoin Mount Healthy's ordinance, it stands the reason that, uh, you know, if another city, Portsmouth or Indian Hill or Norwood has an ordinance just like that, <clears throat> that that ordinance is also unconstitutional. And it will usually be repealed without a, a lawsuit, but it will also be very easy for lawyers who are less talented at constitutional cases to, to jump in and strike down that ordinance or, or for us to move on to that ordinance as well if we really have to with an obstinate city. So we jump in. We don't charge the, the property owners anything. In fact, we cannot charge the, the clients anything since we're a nonprofit. Um, and oftentimes, you know, we get some help from people who notice the case and realize the beneficial effect afterwards, which is in, in large part how, how we're funded. And some of, the, some of these cases at the federal level, uh, we have the ability to, to win our attorney's fees. We, could, we never count on that, but sometimes it's, uh, it's extra help as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, for for our listeners who are elsewhere in the country, because uh, we, do have, we do have listenership uh, um, pretty much coast to coast here, if, if someone's sitting in Birmingham, Alabama, saying, no, why isn't he in Alabama? How, how would they go about finding someone like you where they are? What, are? what are they looking for? What are they Googling? Sure. Well, let me, let me back up and say, the, if you're talking about the rental inspection issue, 
One thing that is universal throughout the country is that these things violate the Fourth Amendment, and that, that applies no matter where you are. The United States Supreme Court made a holding back in the, the late 60s that it advanced in the 70s as well that basically stated that. So there's good federal law all across the nation, and most state constitutions actually prohibit uh, fees from, you know, disguised taxes labeled as fees from being used to basically increase your tax burden without a vote. So there are good arguments in, in most states against these. A proficient constitutional lawyer should be able to make this Fourth Amendment argument, particularly if they have a look at our motion for preliminary injunction, which we consider open source. We put it on our website. We share it with whomever, but we simply ask that they not misuse it and make terrible arguments to, to make a bad precedent <laughs> when they do that. So we like to consult with these people when we can. Um, I'm part of a group called State Policy Network, which is a network of think tanks and legal action organizations across the country. So uh, what I would do if you're in a different state is call, either call us or call your local uh, State Policy Network think tank, which is a free market think tank in your state, and hopefully they could hook you up with a, a good lawyer to help you take the issue on. Excellent. Uh, we're going to take another quick break, and then we're going to go to some listener questions and comments. If you are a listener and you have one of those said questions or comments, you can call it in at 877-772-9658, or you can send an email, askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. My guest today is Maurice Thompson from the 1851 Center for Constitutional Law here in Ohio. We're talking about not legislative issues as we've done here in the past, where we've said, get together with your association, go down and meet your city council people before there's a problem, try to get asked about their anti-property laws before they get out of committee. We're talking now about what happens when it's already happened. And you can't, you know, laws pass, no one's listening. You're being directly uh, violated, if you were, or at least your private property rights are. Uh, Maurice's answer is take to the courts. And he's done that recently uh, with the city of Mount Healthy here in uh, Southern Ohio. And uh, Maurice, I, I, I started to ask the question, you know, is is this, have you found this to be an effective way of of stopping these things? And, and I almost don't have to ask that because apparently Mount Healthy withdrew the rental registration law without a suit after you filed it? Right. Mount, <clears throat> Mount Healthy repealed the law uh, not shortly after we filed. And one of the reasons for that, I should say, we're particularly effective against local governments because, believe it or not, your local government is sometimes more willing to listen to reason and these arguments than the state government may be. And the reason for that is because they pay more attention to their budgets. And if it is a case with a federal cause of action where there is a risk of us winning uh, our attorney's fees. What that means is that the local government has to pay our fees. And what that means is that sometimes the cost-benefit analysis changes. So say they believe they may have to pay us twenty, thirty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 in attorney's fees, 
and they expected to collect potentially that much from a rental license fee, you know, $100 per landlord or $200 per landlord. All of a sudden, they look at the economics of the matter a little bit differently, and they will move quickly sometimes to to repeal the issue, to stop the the fees meter from ticking, or to to maybe try to moot the case, in fact, to to stop an adverse decision. Um, Sometimes they're pressured by the Ohio Municipal League or another kind of uh, trade association for cities say, you know, look, your law is particularly cavalier. Uh, if you lose, it will make bad law for all of the cities, so why don't you just repeal it? So we see that happening not all of the time, um, but, but sometimes in our cases. And I mean, we expect to win. We do a lot of careful analysis before we file these things, and we don't take on cases that we, that we expect to be losers. So... Uh, we found this technique to be particularly uh, attractive and effective in kind of balancing the playing field between taxpayers and property owners and their government. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And once again, folks, if you have questions or uh, comments, stories for Maurice, uh, 877-772-9658, or askvina at gmail.com. And I have a couple of questions piled up via email. But uh, before we get to those, Maurice, I want to play devil's advocate. Because the the cities who pass these things never will say, we're doing this to raise money. They right. say, oh, but we need the money to do the inspections because what we really care about is the health and safety of our residents and the property values within our city. Why, why, do, they, why do they not have the right to regulate that? Yeah, well, there are, there are so many um, responses to that in terms of the policy of the issue. The notion that tenants are like children who need the protection of their father, the government, should be insulting to anybody who rents to begin with. And, and also the notion that landlords don't care about preserving the, the value of their property is also somewhat foolish. Obviously, the people that own the property have an incentive in ensuring that it's habitable. And under the Ohio Revised Code, if it's not habitable, the tenant can, can leave you without paying the rent at any time. So there are already systems in place to safeguard the, the health and safety of the property through market forces that work much, much better than government. What we see instead with these government inspections, and anybody within the sound of my voice who has had a government inspector in their home or business knows this to be true. The last thing that you want is that person within your property, because what they do is spend hours in there, uh, knick-knacking and all of these things that are uh, in an old house in particular or an older building, uh, things that they say aren't up to code that have worked without any sort of problem at all for years and will continue to work without a problem for years. And what happens is they, they give you a, a list of things that you must fix, and they tell you if you don't spend the thirty or forty or $50,000 on this property, they might only be worth that to fix those things and do it within a month they'll file criminal charges against you. So keeping government out of your home or out of your business in the first place is step one, because most of these issues are, are fairly irrational. We're talking about things like um, flaking paint sometimes even, or, or things that are even lesser than that, but more expensive than that. Um, so there are ways for government to do health and safety regulations and inspections, 
Um, but the Fourth Amendment does stop them at the door uh, and does require a warrant for them to do that. And once the cities have to get a warrant to run their programs, they often find that running the program is extremely inefficient and doesn't result in the collection of funds that they anticipate, and they back off. And, and by the way, I should note that under our worldview here, if, if you have a tenant or a neighbor who calls government uh, with a concern, a complaint over a legitimate issue, um, government is, is free to come out at that point and check that particular issue out without a warrant, but their search is limited to that issue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's that's what I was uh, looking to get around to here, because no one's saying that uh, folks should be slumlords or that a tenant who has a who has a real problem affecting the health or safety or livability or whatever shouldn't have the right to call if they can't get satisfaction from their landlord, shouldn't have the right to call the health department or whoever's in charge of that and say, come over and look at this. You know, this is this is not right. Would you please enforce this? Uh, but what these rental registration and, and landlord licensing things tend to do is create a scheduled, we're coming through your property, whether we think there's anything wrong or not, whether right. anyone has said anything is wrong or not, and you're going to pay for that. And you keep mentioning these fees of, of 100 to $200. That's, that's not per landlord. That's per door. <laughs> Many times if you have, right. Right. If you have a four-family you could be looking at between 200 and $400 a year just for these, quote, inspections, even if they don't find anything. And anyone who has ever owned a leveraged home or a leveraged for family where you, you, know, you borrowed 80% of the value in order to buy it knows that that could wipe out a couple of months' worth of cash flow. So what the government is saying is for the, for the health and safety of our citizens, which clearly isn't really the issue where they would be inspecting everyone's house not just the tenants houses uh we're going to we're going to make it economically unfeasible for you to or at least unattractive for you to uh own properties in our area so it's a it's a pretty big uh issue and as you said there's other things in place that if there is a real problem already exist and nobody's arguing about them to get those problems taken care of uh, there, you know, there are, are private accountability mechanisms all over the place when you're talking about rental situations in particular. You know, neighbors are, are on top of you looking over your shoulder uh, if they own adjoining property, and tenants, of course, are, are all over you. And again, they have the ability with, with, to withdraw at any time from the lease if there is a significant issue, much less call government. So there are all kinds of other ways of addressing these issues. And, and like you say, uh, oftentimes it is not the case that every home, it, not even every rental property in a particular city will be subject to an inspection. Sometimes the impar- apartment owners that are a little bit um, more well-funded will lobby their way with some campaign contributions out of the regulatory scheme. So it only applies to single-family homes. And then you've got to ask the question, if you have a dilapidated home that looks and seems unsafe, that's owned by somebody that lives in it, and then you have a fairly pristine home right next to that home, well, why, why is the pristine home subject to inspection 
when the dilapidated home is not simply because it's owner occupied. Very true. Uh, to our emails from our listeners who are sending them into asvina at gmail.com. Uh, this one is from Mike in Canton, Ohio. It's more along the lines of a comment than a uh, question. He says, uh, more than 20 years ago, when one of our landlords fought the city of Canton on the basis of the warrantless search, Canton was forced to get an administrative warrant, and he puts the word administrative in ironic quotes, uh, and presumably we could force them to do that every single time they wanted to inspect the properties, but 99% of the landlords would not bother. We've always felt like this is the grounds upon which the battle should be fought, but alas, it takes a great deal of fortitude, backbone, money, interest, etc., to keep people interested in that pursuit. We overhauled the code a few years ago, and Canton backed off the automatic and mandatory periodic inspections and went to complaint-driven. However, Anyone can lodge a complaint, anonymous or otherwise. (laughs) Plus, every time you get a new rental, or even if you've taken back one that was previously inspected, they now treat it as a new rental, and it's subject to another new inspection. As always, it's all about the money and the fees. Here's an important legal observation that I want to reiterate for your listeners. Uh, And this is true whether it's your home, whether it's your business, whatever. If a person, anonymous or a tenant or a neighbor, calls in a complaint to the city, um, their ability to inspect is entirely limited to the scope of that complaint. So if it's about an outdoor issue, the city inspector cannot come in the house. If it's about uh, a basement mold issue, the city inspector must go directly to the basement, look around there. They cannot expect, inspect the um, upstairs. So there are limits, and it's true that it takes a property owner who's willing to stand up to these people and force them to abide by these limits. Uh, and so these administrative warrants still require probable cause. The Fourth Amendment does not allow a warrant to be pulled unless there's probable cause. So there has to be something going on there in order to get the warrant. You can't just... Uh, you can't just walk into a courtroom and, you know, a warrant is not, not just a piece of paper that you, um, you know, pull off of a, the desk of a judge and, and go do your job. You have to testify to the judge why there is probable cause and why it's necessary in order for you to get the warrant, in order for you to do this inspection. And that additional burden is a real hurdle for cities, and it's one that the Constitution imposes, so it's one that we're trying to impose as well. Excellent. After one more break, we're going to come back to the various listener questions and comments that we've received by email. If you have one of those, you can send it to askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. Or you can give us a call at 877-772-9658. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Talking today to Maurice Thompson from the 1851 Center for Constitutional Law here in Ohio. Getting to your questions and comments now. This one came in via email from Matt in Cleveland. Maurice, why should the government be permitted to single out non-owner occupant property owners for taxes and searches? Isn't this disparate disparate treatment versus owner occupants? What would happen if owner occupants were forced to endure the same extra taxes and unwarranted searches? Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And obviously these things would never fly if they weren't targeted at a very small segment of society. And that's often 
what local governments do is attempt to target their efforts at minority populations, of which uh, you know landlords are often one. So it's it's not surprising, and and the important thing when it comes to the rental inspections there is that in order to get a warrant, the regulatory scheme, or to do any kind of search without a warrant, the regulatory scheme has to be what the Supreme Court says is derived from neutral principles. And so our position on that is that uh, what these Supreme Court cases mean is that administrative regulatory schemes that single out uh, just rental homes instead of apartments or just rental homes instead of uh, owner-occupied homes are not derived from neutral uh, neutral principles, but they're derived from discriminatory principles. They essentially say, uh, if you're a poor middle-class person renting a home, your home will be inspected. So, you know, if you're wealthy enough, you can buy your way out of these inspections. You can buy back your constitutional rights. But if you're not, then you're a second-class citizen. And so they, that question and the answer to it actually does have ramifications for the ability of government to search your property. Mm-hmm. Very good. Question from Christina in Columbus, Ohio. She says, I've been hearing stories about wholesalers in the state of Ohio receiving cease and desist letters over their activities Where in the Ohio Revised Code does it say we can't wholesale properties? Is this a constitutional issue? Right. um, As I understand wholesaling of property, and I don't know how she uses that term, but um, as I understand the issue, this relates to people who, uh, it's the the We Buy Houses um, people who will buy houses, sometimes without even going through them first, at a low cost, maybe it's a distressed property, or a distressed owner who needs the cash, needs to get out from under the house quick, and cannot wait for an MLS listing and everything else. Um, So, you know, you or I would buy this house, and then we would go through it and say, this house is not for me, it's not an investment that I want, I have this purchase agreement, you know, I've promised to purchase the house for $50,000, I'm going to follow through on that, but I'm going to assign the right to purchase that uh, house to somebody else that wants it more and can put it to a better use. So uh, the person will buy, you know, will enter a purchase agreement and then will uh, perhaps offer the, the property up to somebody else. Well, well, to be the specific, they're, Ohio, they're offering the purchase agreement up to somebody else, <laughs> not the property, because right. they don't actually own the property. <laughs> right, it, and that's an important distinction. Thank you for adding that. The, um, that's an important distinction because it's just a right to buy the house to, to somebody else who has a greater interest in it for whatever reason. And uh, apparently this has become more common for uh, a number of different factors. Uh, the Ohio real estate realtors lobby is very aggressive in going after people who do anything that they believe approximates the practice of real estate without a license. However, the real estate licensing laws in Ohio, which are strict, require that you be taking that action for another person. So you cannot sell a house for another. You can't even rent a house for another. And this is very perverse. You know, if you have a brother or sister who lives in a 
in a town where you own a rental property, they can't go over and show somebody through your house under this law. And sometimes people like that actually do get prosecuted under this onerous law. However, one thing that remains true about these regulations is that you have to be doing this for another person. And when you essentially sell the right to buy a particular house, you're not doing it for another person. You're doing it for yourself. You're selling a property that you have the right to buy because you have the purchase agreement. So that's not something where you should run into the unauthorized practice of real estate. And it's something that you shouldn't even get to a constitutional issue because the statute does not apply. If the statute were to apply, you know, the act of offering up or sharing the knowledge that you had this purchase agreement with others is protected First Amendment speech, and you have an issue there. And you also have equal protection and due process guarantees. So, Christina, there's your answer. And uh, anybody out there who's listening who's gotten one of those letters, if you want to contact me, I can pass on Maurice's information to you because I'm sure you're going to want to talk to him more at this point. Um, and uh, appreciate your uh, question there, um, Chris, Christina. Um, I've received two different articles uh, via email that, I mean, I, we don't have time to, to go through them, but they're from different parts of the country. And as you said, these bad ideas tend to spread. So I'll get your take on them, Maurice. Apparently, in Minnesota, they are... Uh, some cities are rationing permission to rent houses by only by saying you have to have a permit to rent your house, and we're only going to give permits to 30% of the property owners on any given block. You think that's going to stand up? No, it's not. You know, that sounds like something that approximates how taxicab medallions are handed out in New York City, and what you find is that people bid bid for and trade these medallions, and it costs almost a million dollars to get a taxicab medallion in New York City because of the limited supply, almost kind of a cap-and-trade program. So it, what it does is drives up prices dramatically and will drive up rents dramatically uh, because it limits the available rental housing in the community. But, but no, that's a property rights argument, and the Minnesota State Constitution is also more protective of property rights. So, you know, the right... A property right is not just the right to own your house, but it's the right to use your property in, in any way you see fit that's not harmful. And typically what that means is that if you've had a pre-existing use that's gone on for years, uh, and, and that's a non-nuisance use, it doesn't create a nuisance to other property owners, then you have the right to continue that use, and government can't take that away from you. Question from JC in Las Vegas. Maurice, why wouldn't the warrantless search slash inspection of a tenant's residence, because we've been talking about it like it was the landlord's house, but it is in fact mm -hmm. the tenant's residence, violate the tenant's Fourth Amendment's rights? And if the rental property is subject to unique increased taxation, are those costs not ultimately borne by the tenant reducing their housing choice? Yeah. yeah yes and yes. The tenant has a right of privacy in the home that he lives in as a tenant, even if he has a lease agreement. It doesn't matter that he's not the owner. Uh, tenants have rights, just like if you're renting a car, you have a Fourth Amendment protection in that car. Um, the Fourth Amendment specifically says houses, so it's very unique because it's business property to the landlord, but it's business property above and beyond a mere warehouse or a storefront or something else because the amendment specifically protects houses. So that's why the, the property owners 
guarantees under the Fourth Amendment are co-equal to that of the tenant, and, and really either party should be in a position to, to say no to the government inspector and to bring a lawsuit. Excellent. Um, also received an article, uh, Village of Westbury creating housing enforcement unit to crack down on illegal housing. And clearly, I mean, this is this is not here in Ohio, but clearly these things are everywhere. And we have about 90 seconds left, Maurice. Give, give, give some advice to listeners who are sitting there thinking... <gasps> He's describing my city. He's describing my situation. What is the first thing that they should do if they think that they have a case like this? You have to find a competent attorney. And if it's a Fourth Amendment issue, uh, you have to find an attorney who's willing to take on the case for free. Those kind of attorneys are not that common. However, it's like a contingency fee. So instead of chasing ambulances, I chase bureaucrats and government employees around. And oftentimes I count on the fact that I'll be able to win my attorney's fees because I believe I'm going to win the case. So if you run into a lawyer who wants to charge you $20,000, $10,000 for the case up front, then that's not the lawyer for you. So find somebody that, that knows these issues, isn't just trying to collect a paycheck, and find somebody that's philosophically aligned and believes in property rights and will fight for you on these issues. Excellent. Very much appreciate you being with us today, Maurice, and I look forward to following your adventures uh, in the future because it looks like your life is always an adventure at the 1851 Center for Constitutional Law, ohioconstitution.org. We will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.